This message is a product of Vortex Church in Albemarle, North Carolina. We thank you for engaging this conversation. Messages like this one are great resources to help us grow, but they cannot replace being a part of a local church. If you're not actively a part of a church, we encourage you to find one near you that fits you, visit it, and get involved. And we hope this message gives life to you today. Enjoy. As God began to call me and speak to me, challenge me to leave what was a very comfortable, good position in the church to move back home and start Vortex. For the last four weeks, we've been really kind of endeavoring to go back and say, God, could you show me what you see? Would you, would you by your grace, by your mercy, through the great power of your Holy Spirit, God, would you would you open my eyes and let me again see the things that I can't see now because I'm not smart enough. I'm not, I'm not wise enough. I, I mean, my ways are not good enough to be your ways. And so, God, would you open up my eyes so that I can see what you see? See, as I was preparing for this, this week I started thinking about sometimes when you see things, and it changes your perspective of the moment. You ever had that happen to you before? You see something. When I was in elementary and middle school, there was something I could see, and it would change the way that class was going to go down. It was when I walked into the room, and there was a TV cart in our classroom, right? Y'all remember that moment? You walk in, you're like, oh, the TV's in here today. That means we ain't learning anything. We're watching a Disney movie. This is going to be awesome. Right? That was the best day ever. And when I was in middle school, let me just go ahead and put it this way. Right, There was no better day than the day we walked into school. And we got into class, and the teacher said, all right, kids, we're going to the computer lab today. Now, see, today kids don't have computers. They got laptops and carts that they push around. But see, when I was in middle school, to go to the computer lab, you actually had to go out of the classroom and go down the hall to a room that was filled with computers. Apple IIe's is what we had, right? I don't know if y'all go way back to the Apple IIe, but that's going way back, right? We had no internet. Like, you didn't do anything on the computer like Google anything. There are only two reasons you went to the computer lab. All right, two reasons. The first one was the teacher wanted you to write something in WordPerfect. I don't know what happened to WordPerfect. It vanished off the face of the earth in the late 90s, right? But that's what we used back then. It was like Microsoft Word for y'all younger folks, right? It was the word problem. We'd go type something up on the computer. Or if it was one of those glorious, wonderful days, we went to the computer lab to play a game. And y'all know what game I'm talking about, right? <laughs> Oregon Trail, right? That was the most awesome game ever. It was. I don't know if you've never played Oregon Trail. You can actually play it live on the internet now. But you'd go in and you would sit down and you would type in like four friends' names, right? That were going to go on this journey. You were going to leave from St. Louis and go over the Oregon Trail, over the mountains to try to get to Oregon. And if you were a sadistic person like I was, you'd try to kill your friends along the way because you wanted to see Thomas just died of dysentery, right? You loved that moment. And Oregon Trail was awesome. You got to go hunting, right? You shoot buffalo and deer. 
was, the graphics were amazing, right? I don't know if you remember that, right? The, the, the pixels were like this big. Like, that's how big it was. Like, one screen, one pixel. That's all you could see. And eventually, in Oregon Trail, you would come to a river. I love that one of the rivers was called the Green River, and it was blue. <laughs> Just like the irony of that was so amazing. But you come to it, and it would give you three options. You could ford the river, you could float the river, or you could pay to ferry the river. Let me just explain those to you. To ford the river, basically, we're just going to drive across this thing. Like, I don't know. We're just going to see how it goes. Don't have any money. Don't have any time. Let's just try to drive. Just some advice, all right? If water's over the road, don't drive across the road, right? Because, I, and this was always my decision, right? Let's just see what happens. I don't know. Thomas fell out and drowned, right? That's what would happen. You're, you're inevitably, when you tried to drive across it, it would crash, and then you would lose half your supplies, and one of your friends would drown. So I would obviously choose that um, option. Or you could float the river, which meant you would have to take some time, right? And you, you were on this race because you didn't want to get to the mountains when it was too cold. Right, so it would take some time to float it because you had to take the wagon wheels off, build a float, and float it across the river. Or if you had enough money from the start, you could actually pay someone to take you across. But here's what I want you to see today. That moment, that moment is, is really what life is all about. That moment, when we get to a spot, and I know I'm here, and I know I'm supposed to be there. That, that's a lot of what life is like. That there is space between. See, life is filled with spaces, y'all. Let's get started in your notes today. There, there are gaps that we will face in life. The, the first one that, that I just want to point out real quick is what I just talked about. The space that's between where we are and where we need to be. Let me just help everyone out in the room. You're not where you need to be. You're not. Your attitude, right, not where it needs to be. Your behavior, not where it needs to be. There's a, a gap between where we are and where we need to be. There is a space between our performance and our expectations. Right? I honestly think that the majority of, of marital problems come out of this kind of coupling right here. That we expect a certain performance from our spouse, and we get this behavior, right? And oftentimes, our, our expectations are, are flawed or based on the way our family did things. But let me just kind of point out another place that that applies that all too often leads to high levels of anxiety and guilt is what we expect out of ourselves. And the difference between what we expect out of ourselves and what we see in ourselves I just want to remind you this morning, the gospel was given to us because you will never be Jesus. And one of the most difficult people to learn to give grace to is ourself. And three, the space between what we have and what we need. Some of y'all might say, I got what I need. Then I would ask you, why are you going to work on Monday? <laughs> I got everything I need. Why are you going to go to work? Because you don't have everything you need. Right? There's a gap between what we have and what we need. And here's what I want to point out to you today. 
is that if we're going to say, Jesus, I love you. I'm going to follow you in life. God, come and lead me. I know that you're the way. You're the the truth, the life. God, I, I will chase you. If we're going to say that, it means there's going to be a gap between us and Jesus because he's leading us. And I want you to know something about that. That is holy ground. The difference between where you are and where God wants you to be is what God is doing in your life. That's holy. That's sacred. That's God moving in you, desiring to change you. We find the sentiment in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18, where the Apostle Paul, writing to the church in Corinth, says this, And we all, who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory, are being transformed into His image with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is His Spirit. And let me break that down for you. So we kind of see, we kind of see Almost see God, right? We, we, we with unveiled faces, we the, who have experienced God, who have been allowed to encounter Jesus, we, we see him and we are being transformed into his image with ever increasing glory, right? I've seen the glory of God. I've witnessed the part, I've kind of seen who God is, but now I'm being transformed into his image with ever increasing glory. That means something for every person in this room. That if we are being transformed, we have not arrived. See, one of the foundational understandings of the gospel is that we don't have it together. We don't really know what the correct next place should be. I, I, really, I really don't know where to go. And so because God gave us the gospel, he gave us Jesus so that we can find our way in him. He's our leader. And there's always, if you choose to follow Jesus, going to be a gap between you and him. There should be. Because you haven't arrived yet. I haven't arrived yet either. That's why this prayer that Moses prays in Exodus 33 is so important. Let's read it again. God, you have told me. I know you by name and I look favorably on you. So if that is true that you look favorably on me, let me know your ways so that I may understand you more fully and continue to enjoy your favor. God, you've done so much in me. You've used me so powerfully. You've brought me so far. But God, don't stop. Let me see what you see. Teach me your ways. Direct my paths. Order my life, God. Show me where to go. Because I'm not there yet. That's what that prayer is all about. And see, here's what happens in our hearts when we get to that moment. And some of you have been there. We've gotten to that moment. Like, I, I know I'm here, and I know God is, has called me to be over there. I know God has called me to be forgiving, but I don't want to let go of the pain. I don't want to release the prisoner that's in my heart that's captured by the pain that they caused. I know, God, I know you want me to be generous, but God, I want to hold on to the resources you've given me. God, I know you want me to be a faithful parent. I know you want me to, to put faith at the center of our family, but God, I, I, you know, I, I really want to make my will, my way at the center of it all. 
right? There's this gap. So how do we approach it? Well, we do it in several different ways. The first one is that we lower our standards. We lower our standards. We look across and we go, this is going to be a lot of work going over this river right here. I don't want to, I'm not going to risk all this. You know, I don't, I don't really want to take the time to take the wagon wheels off and float this thing. You know, God, where I'm at, this is good enough. This is good enough. This is good. I'm happy with this. I've come a long way. Green River is a good place. And we do number two. We quit. Hey, God, you know what? There's a, there's a pretty good town over here. It's a good town. I'm just, instead of like going across the river, I'm, I'm just going to stop and I'm, I'm going to make a life for myself right here. I can hunt. I can, I can get all the food I need and get all the resources. I can just stop right here. I've come a long way. I've come. I'm good. I just quit. I'm done. If you want to die, quit. If you want to die, and I'm not talking about like stop breathing kind of death. If you want the essence of life to get sucked out of you, quit. Stop having vision. Stop having a life that responds to the dream that God dreams for you. Stop it. If you want to die, do that. But if you want to live, those two options are not options. So how do we respond to that gap that exists between the vision that God has for us and where we are? Well, I think we need to do this. Number three, we need to live generously and trust God to increase our capacity. Last week, we looked at the parable of the talents where, where Jesus tells a story about three servants who were given three different amounts of money. And their, their charge, their instructions were, go invest this. Go invest it. It's not, not for you to go have a good dinner with your family. This is investment. Go invest it. I'm going to come back later and see how you're doing. And so the master comes back, and two out of the three had increased their holdings. But one, scared of losing it, buried it, and provided it back to the master. Well, the master was upset about that. Master was upset because the servant didn't do what they were asked. They didn't invest it. And then Jesus says this, that those who are faithful with a little bit will be given more. See, what Jesus is saying is that if we can be faithful right here, if we can be faithful with the little bit that we have on this side of the river, that through faith we can either walk across the river or he will carry us across the river. He will provide increase. He will take us further down the journey. I'm going to take you today to a text that I think personally has been more challenging in this realm than any other text in all of Scripture. It's 2 Corinthians chapter 8. It's a letter written to a church in a city called Corinth. It's written by the Apostle Paul. We talk about him a lot because he wrote a lot of the New Testament. But just to kind of explain how this would have worked, the Apostle Paul was based out of Jerusalem. Is probably the largest sending city. And so the Apostle Paul traveled throughout what we know today as, as Europe, starting churches, right? From the Middle East around into Europe, starting churches in cities. 
So just think about it this way. Like I showed up in Albemarle, we started Vortex, and a year later I peace out, and then I go somewhere else and I start a church, right? But I continue to come back and check on you. I install leadership and pastors here. That's kind of who the, the Apostle Paul was. And so a lot of the books that we see in the Bible or the Apostle Paul writing back to the churches that he started, checking in. Or, I heard about this, so let me give you some instruction about that. All right? That's who the Apostle Paul was. So he's writing the church in Corinth here. And here's what's going on. The, the ministry of the gospel has exploded. The, the apostles are being sent out all over the known world, starting churches that literally go from, from tens to hundreds to thousands almost overnight. And the church in Jerusalem is financially strapped. And so they say, hey, you know what? We have an idea. We've started all these churches. God has all these people that are being connected to the mission. So why don't we just ask them to help with what's going on out of Jerusalem? So they started taking up collections all over the world to fund the ministry that was coming out of Jerusalem. The Apostle Paul is writing this letter to the church in Corinth from a town called Macedonia. Now, let me just kind of paint a picture, right? Let's just get regional, right? The, the church in Corinth would have been like uptown in Charlotte with all the best musicians, all the best lighting, stage, sound, everything. Talented, wealthy, influential. Well, the church in Macedonia would have been like somewhere in between Cottonville and Ansonville. All right? I mean, somewhere in the middle of nowhere with poor folks that love Jesus. And Paul describes what happens when they take up the collection for Jerusalem, beginning in verse 2. In the midst of a very severe trial, so they're going through a very severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. For I testify that they gave as much as they were able, and even beyond their ability, entirely on their own. They urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in this service to the Lord's people. And they exceeded our expectations. They gave themselves first of all to the Lord, and then by the will of God also to us. See, the notion that I can't be generous because I'm not wealthy is obliterated in those few verses. Because as the Apostle Paul describes what happens in the midst of this offering and this collection in Macedonia, he says, listen, first of all, they're in the middle of a severe trial. Secondly, they're in poverty extreme poverty, and out of all of those things welled up inside of them the desire to be generous to what God's doing. See, there's a little tension that at this point you probably don't see. See, the Corinthian church has promised to support this ministry out of Jerusalem significantly. There's, there's a, a promise on the table from them that they were going to give a bunch of money. But they haven't taken up a collection or sent any money yet. And so here's this church that doesn't have any money, doesn't have any talent. And they say, hey, you know what? We're so excited about what God's doing that even though we're poor, we're going to be generous towards it. We want to be a part of it. We want to be a participant in what God's doing. 
And so Paul writes the Corinthian church beginning in verse 8 and says this. Now, I'm not commanding you, but I want to test the sincerity of your love by comparing it with the earnestness of others. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. See, he reminds them. Hey, you know what? You promised this, but look, like I, I'm not going to compel you to give, but let's just kind of, you, you tell me, hey, I love you, Paul. I'm behind you, Paul. I'm supporting you, Paul. I'm, I've got your back. So let's just test the sincerity of that love against someone else. Because this church who doesn't have near what you have has chosen to be generous. And then he says this, which is really, I think, the gist of what he's trying to encourage the Corinthians church. In 2 Corinthians 8, 7, he says this, Since you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in complete earnestness, and in love that we've kindled in you, see that you also excel in this grace of giving. Think about that. In this grace of giving. I, I want to submit to you that buried within that word grace is hidden a, a truth about the way that God thinks about giving. See, when we think about grace in our lives, we often think about the forgiveness of the Lord, right? That, that God didn't have to forgive me. I, I could never earn his forgiveness. I can never be good enough. And so it's by God's grace that I'm forgiven. Like I can never earn God's love. I'd never be good enough for God to love me. But he chooses to love me. That's God's grace, right? But here, the Apostle Paul describes giving and our ability to give. As grace. I want to submit to you today that giving unlocks something in life that cannot be unlocked otherwise. That we, if outside of our choice to be generous, there, there is only something that can happen inside that choice that can unlock part of the God that part of the life that God wants us to live. I want to submit that to you today. As a matter of fact, I want to point you to some research that's emerging. This is not uh, believer-oriented research. This is not a bunch of Christians that got together and decided to research giving just so they could get more money for their church. Okay? I'm going to point you to three different studies that talk about giving. The first one uh, comes from Dr. Elizabeth Nunn. She wrote a book in 2011 called Happy Money. All right. Here's what she said in that book. Money can buy happiness. The more people spend money on other people or give it away, the happier they report being. And this is true in developed and underdeveloped nations. It's true worldwide. It started with a study that she conducted in New York City, right? And so they, they studied people and, and basically went through the, the way that they spend money and tried to correlate the way that they spend money towards their level of expressed happiness. And they found one common denominator. People who gave away a significant portion, over 10% of their income, were found to be significantly happier. 
And so they made this massive study. They actually went and said, hey, you know what? These are affluent people. Why don't we go to one of the poorest nations in the world? So they went to Uganda and did an almost nationwide study and found the same correlating factor. That people who are generous reported being happier. The University of Rochester, since the mid-2000s, has been studying their graduates. They poll them before they graduate, and then they meet with them five years after, and they ask them this question, what are your goals? What do you want to do with your life? And here's what they reported. Graduating students who identified intrinsic goals, such as serving and giving, were significantly more satisfied with their lives after college when compared to those who had extrinsic goals, such as getting promotions or making more money. The people who graduated and said, I'm going to become a teacher because I want to watch a kid's heart catch on fire. I want to watch someone just become passionate about what I'm passionate about. The, the, the people who said, I'm going to go out and, and I'm going to start this business because I want to serve this community. I want to serve the world by doing that. People who said, I want to give my life away, significantly more satisfied with their lives than the people who said, I really just want to make more money. I'd like to climb the corporate ladder. I want a bigger house, a bigger car. And last one, and this is a remarkable book from Dr. Stephen Post to this this study is is a comprehensive study using Gallup and several major polling uh, organizations went over 10 years. And this is, so he's a medical doctor and he's examining the way that generosity impacted the lives of the people who were generous. He said this, from all of my research, I have one simple message. Giving is the most potent force on the planet. Find ways to give daily. You'll be happier, healthier, and you'll even live longer. Y'all, I don't know about y'all, but that's challenging right there. It's challenging to me because as I mentioned earlier, when I studied 2 Corinthians chapter 8, like throughout my time as a believer, that's been a challenging passage for me. Because when I, when I first became an adult, and I would sit here and listen to someone talk about giving. I, I'd go, this is my money. Why are you trying to tell me what to do with my money? And I don't know about you, but I'm just naturally selfish. I am. I mean, I more naturally want to spend money on myself. I want to buy something new to put in my office. I want to do something new at the house. I want that shirt, that pair of shoes, whatever it is. I mean, I think we see that, and we talked about it last week. If you didn't get to listen to the message in our kids, right? They, they just become so attached to the stuff that they don't even own. And see, when we as a family decided to become generous and start tithing, right? Something started happening in my heart. And I can honestly say that over the last 10 years, specifically the last five, like God has bent something back the way it's supposed to be. I mean, I, I, I am not as naturally prone to go spend money on myself anymore. 
I am not more naturally inclined to say, hey, I want to buy that. I want to get that. Because giving changes us. It opens our eyes to see something and experience something that we could never experience outside of that. So how do we approach the gap that exists in our life when God speaks to us and says, hey, I want you to go over here. I want, you to, I want you to be this person. You're right there right now, but I want you to be that person. Today I'm going to speak to that, but I'm going to speak it in, in kind of broader terms as, a, as a, a church family. And this is one of those things that we're just going to share this for us. As a church, how do we become the church God sees? All of these points are personal to you and can be, but, but I'm going to speak in a, a more broader term today. The first thing that we need to do is we will refuse to lower our standards or quit. We refuse to lower our standards or quit. Y'all can just know this. We could stop right now and say, God, you've done an amazing thing. We're happy with it. We'll cherish what you've done. We could, but we're not going to stop. We're not going to quit. As a matter of fact, one of the buzzwords in churches is that they want to do everything excellent. Right? We want to be excellent in worship, excellent in children's ministry, all of those kind of things. Can I tell you how we measure excellence here? By making progress. That's excellence. By taking the next step. Whatever it is. wherever We're not going to quit. We're not going to lower our standards. We're going to keep making progress. Towards number two, we will remain focused on our calling. We will remain focused focused on our calling. So just to remind you, if you're uh, new here, or maybe you've read these things a thousand times, but we need to be reminded of some things occasionally. Let Let me just drop the two sentences that really are what God's called us to do. Number one, God's called us to do two things. Invite people to make Jesus the center of their lives. We believe Jesus is the only authentic center of a life. Our lives naturally wrap around the center. There's something that's going to be at the center of our lives. Jesus needs to be the center of your life. We exist to invite people to make that decision. Number two, to invest in their journey to get closer to him. And let me just tell you what this point means for you. It means that at some point along the way, you might come in and say, Hey, Kevin, there's, there's something that a couple churches in the community are getting involved in. I, I'm really passionate about this. Would you please do this? And I may very well go, no. Because it's off mission. It's not what God called us to do. And even though God may have called them to do that, and it may be a very good, noble thing to be involved in, it's not the mission that God's given us. And we're going to stay focused on that. Here's why. In Two and a half years, we've seen over 300 people give their lives to Jesus here. That's a remarkable thing, all right? But 300 is a drop in the bucket in the number of people that don't know Jesus and are lost in our community. And as long as there's a family just down the road that's hurting and doesn't know Jesus, our church isn't big enough. And I know, man, some people say, hey, the church just got too big. Can I just ask what that means? The church got too big. Yeah, I mean, the church reached too many people. Like, that's a bad thing? 
And the church has just been so effective that they've been really proclaiming the gospel and people have been getting saved. It's just too big. Like, that's bad? See, the church isn't big enough as long as there are people that don't know Jesus. We're going to stay focused on our calling. Number three, we're going to let Jesus build a legacy through us. So a few weeks ago, we unveiled Legacy Builders. Legacy Builders is going to be a team of people who have chosen to give above and beyond the tithe to help us prepare to build our first permanent facility. Let me explain why we're doing it that way. The tithe in Scripture is designated to help fuel ministry. And we're not going to rob ministry. How stupid would it be for us to go, hey, God's doing something amazing here. So let's take all the money that God's using to do that and dedicate it towards building a building. That would be absolutely stupid. But we are going to invite you to be a part of a team that gives above and beyond that 10% to help us prepare for that. Because there's some of you that already, you're already doing that. And I believe that through that, God's going to help us grow. So let's talk about that today. You have a handout in your worship guide. It's blue, and I'm going to walk you through this. So there's two ways to commit to give above and beyond our tithe. One is a percentage gift where you go, hey, I'm going to give 2% above and beyond the tithe. So I'm going to give 12% total, 2% to the legacy fund. Our family has decided to give 5%. So we're giving 15%, 5% is designated towards the legacy fund. Y'all with me? Or you can give a dedicated amount. Hey, you know what? I'm going, to give, I'm going to give $25 a month. I'm going to give $50. I'm going to give $100. I'm going to give $1,000. Whatever it is a month. So how do you go about doing that? If you write a check that you want to go into the Legacy Fund, that that's your, your gift for the month, all you have to do is put on the note on the bottom, hey, Legacy Fund. If you're giving cash, write it on the envelope, Legacy Fund. If you're giving online, on our mobile application with SecureGive or through the website. There's now a designated line item for Legacy Fund. If you do that, it'll go into that account. But here's the thing. I want you to understand that when our church asks you to do something, the leadership in our church will do that as well. So right here is the signed commitment card from every family that's a staff family in our church. Every family that's leading and serving, every family that's in leadership has said, hey, we'll do the same thing. We're going to ask people to do it. We're going to do that. All right? Not only are we going to do that personally as as a staff, but our church is going to make a sacrifice. All right, so we've committed a, a kind of a savings program where we've capped our operational expenses and everything above that in our budget gets saved each month. Not only that, But once a quarter, our church is going to take one whole week's giving and roll it over into that account. We actually did that last week. So if you were here last week and you gave last week, that offering was rolled over into that account. As of this morning, before we received any offering today, the Legacy Fund was already over $9,000. All right, we have a goal of $50,000 this year. Let me just go ahead and tell you, I think we're going to obliterate that goal. Because $50,000 doesn't touch what we need. All right, that's the truth. We have to come up with 20% before we purchase land or before we build a building. All right, and I believe God is going to do something amazing through this. So that's how you get involved. If you're the family that signs one of these cards and commits, hey, 
We want to build a legacy by giving above and beyond the tithe. What we've decided to do is to commit to you to stay in touch with you. Have quarterly meetings. We're going to go through some of that in just a little bit. And what do we need to do to be the church God sees? Number four, everything we do will be centered on Jesus. Everything we do will be centered on Jesus. In Matthew 14, it's one of those beautiful moments in Scripture. The disciples are in the middle of a storm on a boat in the Sea of Galilee. And they're crying out for Jesus to come save them. And he comes to save them, not in the boat, but walking on the water. I don't know about you, but I've never walked on the water. But Jesus did. And here he comes, and in this really beautiful interchange, Peter sees him coming and says, Jesus, if it's you, call me out. I'll come out to you. I mean, storm raging, Jesus walking on the water, and he says, fine, Peter, come on. So Peter gets out of the boat and walks out to meet Jesus. But there's this storm that's raging, and he takes his eyes off of Jesus. And the Bible records that when he does that, he starts to sink. Let me just tell you this. As a church, we're not going to take our eyes off Jesus. He's going to stay at the center of everything we do. But you know what happens when Peter starts to sink? Well, Jesus walks over to him, picks him up, and carries him back. See, today there are some of you that are here. And maybe life started out like that. You got out of the boat, you started walking, and you were chasing Jesus, but then you took your eyes off of him. And right now, where you're at, you would say, hey, I'm sinking. It didn't go into, well, I'm in the middle of a storm, waves crashing all around me. I feel like I'm about to drown. Isn't it good to know that we serve a God that can pick us up and carry us home? Let's pray. So, God, today we just look to you and we ask that through your grace and mercy that you would come and carry us, those who are broken and lost, those who need desperately to be touched by you. God, we, we look to you. So with every head bowed, every eye closed, let me just ask you a question today. Do you need Jesus to carry you right now? Do you feel like you're living in the middle of a storm, like the waters are raging all around you, but you're not walking on the water. You're, you're barely treading water, bar barely keeping your head above the water right now. And you need Jesus to come to pick you up and to carry you home. If that's you and you need Jesus to do that, raise your hand right now. I need Jesus to pick me up. That's awesome. Hands everywhere. Who else today? Who else? So God, for those of us that are in desperate need of you to carry us. We look to you and we ask you to do it in the name of Jesus. Rescue us from the storm, God. Be our Savior and our Lord. And we'll follow you. We'll follow you all the days of our lives. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening. This podcast has been a production of Vortex Church in Albemarle, North Carolina. For more information on our church, we encourage you to visit us online at vortexchurch.com.